what we do here is go back, 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 back. Hello there. I am Ali Hassan. I am Marco Timpano. You are listening to This Podcast is Delicious. And today we have truly a delicious guest for you. Marco, are you feeling pretty pumped up about this? Oh, man. I've, I've been over the moon for a week, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, we teased it in our last episode, so it's not a big reveal, but it's still it's still pretty fun. If you are uh, unaware of who this man is, it's one of those cases where it's actually not his fault. He's done the work. It's, where have you been? That's really the question, because he's done all the work. Um, yeah, he's done more you... work than you expect, Ali. Like it's like you start looking and you're like, oh, okay, so he's done this, and then you're like, what? And and he's done this and this and broken yeah. records and what? charity like it's like how do you have that kind of time in your life to accomplish as much as 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 is on page here and now he can add to that list that he has done unless he leaves in the next minute he has done this podcast is delicious i want to welcome to the show bob bloomer how are you bob fantastic and i'm just moving this right up to the top of my bio top line headline top line it's the crown jewel crown jewel at this point, you can erase everything else in the bio. I mean, this is this is it. What else, right? what else is there to say? What else is there to say? If you would like to take a look at Bob Bloomer and see what he looks like, because we don't have a video podcast, you can go to his Instagram page at Bob Bloomer. Three B's in there at Bob Bloomer um, to see what he's uh, up to and and what he looks like right now. Still a very spry, energetic dude. We met. You know, over the years, we've met repeatedly at, at, at a festival that I talk about on this podcast, the Devour Food and Film Festival in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. And Bob, when I was, uh, we, we, we'd we maybe had a few drinks and we were strolling in the darkness on the streets of Wolfville. You told me something interesting that I don't know that everyone would know. I, I certainly didn't. And I've followed your career for a long time. You had told me that you started off in the music business. You had it not even just one foot in the music business. You were, you were full in music business. You managed, I think a variety of artists. You told me Jane Sivery was one of them for, for over a decade. Prior to that, you went to um, the Ivy business school at Western, you know, in, in, in polite dinner conversation, they like to call that the Harvard business school of Canada. You can tell us if it is or isn't. So you have this business degree and then you are working in business how did we get from that to food? Did uh, was it something Jane Sibbery said to you? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, so I did graduate from business school, and in between that and managing Jane, because I decided I wanted to get into the music business, um, I, uh, I I got in like any I got my foot in the door in the easiest way possible, and that was selling merchandise for rock bands, and so who uh, affectionately referred to me as the t-shirt puke. And, uh, and I toured all across Canada with bands, some, some Canadian bands, in which case I'd be on the bus, the tour bus, and then some big bands like ACDC, where I was like driving behind the tour on, you know, in a step van full of t-shirts. Wow. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't like I just went to business school and then jumped into, you know, management uh and i started managing jane because i'd seen her play in some small clubs in, in london ontario when i was going to school and she was uh, a sort of burgeoning artist at the time uh who went on to international acclaim and uh so i, I worked with her for 13 years and traveled the globe uh touring and and all that 
as one does. Uh, and somewhere in the middle of all that, uh, Jane went to, I moved to Los Angeles to be closer to her record company, uh, which was Warner Brothers. And uh, Jane went to England to make a record with Brian Eno, uh, who's a pretty acclaimed uh, sure. producer. Huge. He's the E in uh, ELO, is he not? Uh, no, but he's oh, the co-producer of <laughs> co-producer of many of the U, the big U two albums with Daniel Lanois. Oh, that's what Brian yes. is. Okay, okay. And, uh, and also, he was in um, uh, Roxy Music. There you uh, go. Uh, okay. Great musician, really interesting thinker. Uh, anyways, Jane went to England for a few weeks to make a record and spent the almost six months there. And so while she was doing that, uh, I couldn't really afford to pay my my rent. And uh, somebody over the course of a long boozy dinner of several bottles of $2 Trader Joe's wine said, you know, mm. this food's pretty good. You ought to write a cookbook. And I thought to myself, yeah, I'm going to write a fucking cookbook. And of course I had no credibility and know anything and had, a, you know, didn't own a cookbook or um, had never taken a cooking class, but I sat down and wrote a cookbook and tricked the publisher into publishing it. And it, came out and then I was immediately reviewed by the New York times. And that's wow. when I decided, that's when I decided I, I better learn how to cook. Uh, that's hilarious. Was it reviewed? Well, uh, it was actually, it was in okay. Christmas, Christmas roundup. It was a very unusual book because it was, it was called the surreal gourmet and it had, um, it was really a guide to better living more than a cookbook, but had whatever I knew how to make at the time. Uh, I couldn't afford a photographer, so I illustrated it with my own surreal illustrations. That's mm. why I called myself the Surreal Gourmet. And eventually, through a series of sort of, uh, I don't know what you'd even call it. I mean, the Salvador Dali Museum. Uh, oh, Jesus. Now the phones are ringing. Everybody wants that. them. Everyone wants them. Do you need to get that, Bob? While <laughs> that, we... that, that's okay. That's kind of like my Christmas jingly phone. So. <laughs> Did you that tell your be. wife? Did you tell your wife if if I'm not off this podcast in ten minutes, that's when you Just call? call. Me. Yeah, exactly. The safety call. The safety call. Uh, anyways, long story short, uh, I went from being the surreal gourmet because I uh, I illustrated my book with my own surreal illustrations to creating surreal uh, presentations where I'd make something that would look like a cupcake, but actually it was your savory entree. In the the base of the cupcake was mm -hmm. lamb, and the mashed that that what looked like icing was mashed potatoes that had a little bit of roasted beet in it and i started to live up to my name and blah 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 it went from there I you, and you you said i had to learn how to cook in a hurry now do you mean uh, cook sort of in in the, the classic way of cooking did you already have a background in cooking when you were touring no i had zero background. years zero zero wow. background i just made this shit up i mean but i have here's the thing uh um like yourself you know, we, we sort of grew up in a kind of scrappy world where we had, if we wanted to elevate our quality of life, we had to learn how to elevate it on our own terms. Mm -hmm. And I taught myself how to cook um, as a way of eating better when I was in college. And, um, and as a, I was, I always went to art classes. My mother sent me to classes after school and stuff. And so if, imagine if you're painting and you've got yellow and you've got blue, it, after a while, you can close your eyes and visualize the green that's going to come from mixing the yellow and the blue. And so I have a kind of natural affinity uh, with food to imagine how flavors will combine, uh, even if I don't combine. I can taste in my mouth what things will look like if I'm looking at them on a table. 
how they'll be. Uh, I couldn't for the life of me change the oil in my car, like, hmm. you know, or fix sure. my computer or do anything or, or never right. mind fix my computer, use my computer basically for anything other than a word processor. So, you know, we all have things that we can do I- intuitively and other things that we are out in the woods lost. And the cooking happens to be something that came naturally to me. And so I jumped into it with both feet and, and spent a lot of time around a lot of people who were willing to share their knowledge. And then a lot of time just observing. And, you know, if I'm at a street stall in, in Bangkok, I'm like looking at what they're doing and making mental notes. And after 30 years of doing this, I've become a pretty decent cook. I love I love how, you know, from someone saying you should write a cookbook, you actually getting on it, doing it, and how this journey begins for you. It, it really is a testament to your, your fortitude and, and your vision of things. Well, it is. There's a lot of tenacity involved in what we all do, right? Especially in the arts, because you're getting the door slammed in your face all the time. And when I look back on my life, I think of it, which one does when they get to, you know, our, our phase of life. Uh, and you're sort of trying to take stock of how how did I get here? How did this is my beautiful wife? This is my beautiful house. How did I get here? Um, talking heads. Everybody yep. you missed that reference. Um, I I see my life as having had a lot of roadblocks and and it the circuitous path that I ended up taking was a path that was a result of something standing in my way, and then I would go over it, around it, through it, underneath it, like whatever it took. That's, that's part of what happens when you're a rock manager for 13 years. You like, that's, that's mm. the skill set of a rock manager is just, you solve problems. It doesn't matter. The show must go on. Right. And so to a certain degree, that approach to whatever you're doing, if you're in the creative world and you have to make stuff happen because no one's there making it happen for you is, um, is just what you do. And I think the last thing I'll say about that is I think yeah. if if I'm lucky about any one thing in particular, it's that I may I may never have been the best artist or the best chef uh, or the best TV presenter, but having some of those skills and then some tenacity is better than being the best, and some business skills is better than being the best artist or the best chef because we all know a lot of those who are. Uh, geniuses in their field but they're they get lost because they unless they've connected to somebody who is a business manager a loyal business manager who can do all the heart you know the business work for them and block be like a blocker in football uh to protect them they they can be the best whatever in the world sure. and not necessarily get that far ahead or they only reach out to the to that sort of one percent of people who are the best they don't reach out to an audience like you did with your shows which i thought i think is runs the gamut right um and and when we're talking about your shows like surreal gourmet and glutton for punishment it it gives me the opportunity to ask you this what happened behind the scenes the things that we as an audience didn't see uh when you were making those shows um well, those shows are they're very different shows, sure. uh, so it's hard to answer that question in broad strokes. So Surreal Gourmet was a show shot uh, on uh, in one location in one day. It was an instructional cooking show, but we shot it in this Airstream trailer with two eight-foot slices of toast on top. By the way, Bob, if I can just interrupt you to celebrate you for a second, I encourage all our listeners to go to bobbloomer.com. 
and go to the section called Adventures and click on Toastermobile and you will go on a quite literally on a journey. You will go on Bob's journey on how that toaster movie, how that airstream became came to be. Yeah. It is some of the best reading ever. I mean, I I, I left that I left that webpage. Uh, it's a longer read. It's not just a page, you know. But I left it uh, inspired and uh, also feeling inadequate. I'm not doing enough. I'm not no. aggressive enough. I'm not. It, it's a fantastic read. It's a fantastic read. And I just because you mentioned it, I said, you know, check out that toaster mobile link. It's quite a story. Oh, thank you. But yeah, getting uh, it, back to the surreal gourmet, it was in in that airstream. Uh, well, that the airstream was that toaster mobile tour happened, and I before like before the TV show. So I had a book come out that was called Off the Eaten Path. It was my third book, and. I didn't have a TV show and I wanted to make some noise for the book. And so uh, I decided to raise a quarter of a million dollars from sponsors. I bought the Airstream. I tricked it out with a food, you know, like a food truck before food trucks existed. Mm -hmm. And then did this 30 city, 30,000 kilometer, three month long tour around North America, doing these crazy kamikaze dinner parties and all sorts of promotional stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, morning TV shows in every city I went to and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and then uh, the TV show happened. And uh, um, so what were the behind the scenes things that happened in the TV in that show? Because sometimes that can be stranger than what one sees, like things that we, we're not privy to. If there's a moment you can remember where it's like, oh, here's a story for you. Especially when you're putting that many kilometers on and that many going through that many cities and well, okay, so these are two separate things. That tour was completely that was pre TV show. Oh, that wasn't yeah, that wasn't televised, right? Right. Although it probably should have been. It probably well, should that have been. would have been yes. The TV show was you know it was uh, it was the beautiful thing about surreal gourmet is it happened at the very dawn of the Food Network before people started meddling in everything. And they let a guy like me who just made all this stuff up uh, have a show cooking out of a giant toaster, making high concept themed dinners for different audiences in every episode. And we just got away with it. I mean, mm. flash forward to uh, uh, a a few years later and I'm pitching another show to the food network during the recession. And I want to do a show called the hard times hedonist, which is basically, if you really look at it, it was like a zero waste show, how to make use up every single thing that you buy uh, and make delicious food out of it. And the food network was like hard times hedonist. No one's going to know what hedonist is. We're going to call it cheap plates like cheap dates, get it? And and uh, needless to say, uh, you know, thanks to the great wisdom of the Food Network, this show died a miserable death in development. <laughs> uh, so that's how things changed. Yeah. Uh, over time, you know, very quickly, it went from you have free reign to do whatever you want and be this crazy guy, uh, you know, wearing pajama tops and cooking in a toaster to, well, no, we're going to control everything. And now, of course, it's all um, competition shows. Do I sound bitter? No. No. Well, you know, I've, I've talked about this too, Bob, from the outsider who had a tiny insider view. You know, I, I had a singular focus to get on the Food Network at one point. I started doing stand-up comedy to improve my 
persona, my confidence on stage. I wanted to treat the audience like a studio audience. And I wanted to have a food show. And I went very quickly from unqualified to overqualified. And I was like, how did this happen? What the? <laughs> and all the only reason I was overqualified is because I had been cooking with some regularity in various restaurants, co-managing restaurants, um, you know, a, a chef in a restaurant with a buddy of mine, like co-chefing, I guess you could say. And then the worry became, you know, and you alluded to it just now, the worry became, what if he uses a word like um, uh, mise en place? Yeah, our, emulsify. Our, what, our, they'll be lost. Our moronic, clearly, like, I don't know what you, how, how you could think any lower of your audience. Our, our armchair chefs might be lost, and then what will happen? We'll never get them back. This is this felt like the view. And then so you know, friends of mine have cooking shows who they've got that they've gotten the last five friends, Marco and I too. Yeah. And and by their own admission, you know, I'll I'll just say John Catucci, who's a friend of ours, and I'm so happy for his success. John was like, dude, I, I can't really fry an egg. I'm like, but you have three cookbooks. He goes, I know. It's crazy. And that's what this that's what the food network seemed to be looking for. The everyday person, the lay person who won't uh, who won't lose the uh, audience with some crazy esoteric term like poaching or something right. you know what i mean right anyway i we understand your bitterness here at this podcast is delicious I, actually you know in fairness i'm really not bitter i feel i, no, I, I you feel really I, i'm grateful and my show glutton for punishment in which i had five days to uh learn a particularly daunting often very physically challenging food related skill and then on the fifth day i was thrown to the wolves and had to compete in a professional competition um that was a show that i had we had pretty well full that would still sort of fell under the the that time frame where we had full uh whatever we could do yeah full creative control or pretty close to it so I really yeah. had a 10-year run of full creative control and then two more years of a show called World's Weirdest Restaurants. And to have been on the Food Network for 12 consecutive years was uh, was really a, a gift. And I, I have nothing but sort of great, warm and fuzzy feelings about that whole experience. And, and you know what? doesn't matter what world you work in. There's always shit that you have to deal with it. And somebody oh, who's got a different opinion about it. So I want to, I want to walk back the, do I sound bitter comment because I am nothing but grateful for all the experiences sure, sure. that I've had. And I think any, any keen observer of the food network would know exactly what you're referring to anyway about that yeah. change. Uh, you know, I feel like the numbers may not be exact uh, accurate, but I feel like I was one of the first 100 people watching both Food Network and the UFC. Like I watched UFC too, you know, like I was really uh-huh. early in that and now I don't. Yep. And same thing with the Food Network. Very few people remember this show with Bobby Flay in a loft space with this woman who was apparently a Canadian comedian, Jackie something. I can't remember her yep. name. Very yep. few people remember that. Very few people remember Ming Tsai and all the. I don't remember I any of watching that. It. You don't remember it. No. I know. You're. I'm sorry, buddy. You're you're the, you're the majority. You're yeah. the majority. People don't. But I was there in the early, early days, so I watched it evolve and I saw it become this. But yeah. I want to. And hey, in. one last thing I'll say is that it's like people vote with their remotes, right? They vote yeah. with their remote, so you can't fault the Food Network with going with what seems to be popular. Why do you think Diners, Drive-ins, and Dives is on twenty four seven? Because mm-hmm. that's what people want, right? And they want that instead of me and my quirky 
goofy stuff now. So, sure. or at least the ma- the majority of them do. I mean, but that said, the Food Network also uh, uh, not yielded to, but they they also started the Cooking Channel, right, or the Cooking Network, that secondary network for people who did want to learn how to cook. Yeah. Right. So, so there were enough people who also were like, Hey, I'd like to learn something sure. rather than just watch people, uh, duel to the death over macaroni. But anyway, exactly. I, uh, I wanted to dive a little deeper into Marco's question and I'm a little reluctant to do this. You know, Uh-oh. when I tell people I'm a, a stand-up comic, the first question they always ask is like, uh, what's the worst heckle you've ever heard? You know what I mean? Like, it's always like, you don't ask an accountant. Somebody goes, I'm an accountant. You don't go, uh, Hey, uh, who did you make go bankrupt? You ever seen someone cry? You know what I mean? Like nobody ever, for some reason, we're like the matadors. They want to know like, when were you stabbed? Or we're like the NASCAR drivers. What's your worst wreck been? So I, I'm reluctant to ask you this question this way. But at the same time, Bob, I feel like we have celebrated your successes. So I want to ask a little bit about things that may have gone bad, especially you brought up world's weirdest restaurants. And I can't help but wonder this. Was there ever stuff that you were like, I really can't eat that. I don't want to eat that. I can't eat that. I know you're asking me to do this on camera, but this is not going to work out. Um, yeah, there's, there is lots of that for sure. And uh, was the there truth a lot is, of it? Okay. well, when I was, there's a few things, there's a few ways, a uh, few answers for this question. First of all, when I was a kid, I was an insanely fussy eater from the time I was 12 to the time I was 16. I lived on iceberg lettuce and tomato sandwiches on white bread toast with butter. Full stop. No mayonnaise, no bacon, no nothing. It was just, and that was just because of my taste. Like it was just, and I made those for myself for like four years in a row. That was my diet. And then eventually I learned to eat almost everything, but there are still a few things that I don't like. And I'm embarrassed to say this uh, because I lose credibility with chefs very quickly, but like mushrooms, I still don't like mushrooms. Very surprising. Uh, And it's just the taste, the texture and the smell. Otherwise I think they're fabulous. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I've been, I cook with them all the time. I just spent three days in British Columbia cooking with morale mushrooms for some big dinners. But, Mm. uh, but the point is that when on world's weirdest restaurants, first of all, people used to bizarrely, and I use that word intentionally, mistake mistake me for Andrew Zimmer, who has a show called Bizarre Foods, Ooh, where he yeah, eats right. everything bizarre. So in my day on the Food Network, from kind of the beginning, like people would bring me foods that, and I'm choosing my words carefully because you can't really say weird food anymore sure. because one person's mm-hmm. Weird food is another person's delicacy, and it sure. depends on how you've grown well, up and what part of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only delicacy; sometimes it's their comfort food. It's what makes them to- feel totally. Grounded and it, it, you know, home. be it um, you know some form of intestine that we're not, or offal that we're not accustomed to eating, or uh, balut, which is the partially formed duck embryo yeah, that's Filipino, popular in the Philippines. Sure. Uh, I was served um, squirming. Uh, killer bee larva in Japan, um, mm. you know, the de rigueur uh, bull testicles, uh, you know, one all must, that. One must one have must. the bull but, but here's here's what I always did. Uh, I just, I am, I imagine in my mind that I turn around and I see a hundred people lined up behind me, all of whom want my job. 
which per our previous conversation is a job that I'm so grateful for having had the opportunity to have. And I think to myself, are you going to say, I'm not going to eat this? And then one of those hundred people is going to step forward and take your job. Right. Right. So, yeah. So I, I, you know, I graciously ate everything and, and, and that I was fed. And as for, did I eat a lot of bad food? On World's Weirdest Restaurants, uh, if I had a nickel for every overcooked, dry rib that I had to eat and say this was delicious, um, I would be a rich man. The point of that show was not to critique the restaurants. It was to celebrate them. So Mm. that was just part of it. But if you look very closely at the screen and my face as I'm tasting. You can notice my nose get a little longer as I say how delicious <laughs> the dry ribs are. That is still something worth uh, celebrating right there, Bob, because I once had an audition for a show and it was going to be like competition, like a world, you know, this neighborhood, Leslieville's best burger or whatever it was, right? So that was our audition, but we were going to go across, you know, the, the best pierogies in the north end of Winnipeg, the best whatever hand-pulled noodles in Regina. This was the idea for the show. How many hand-pulled noodle shops are there in Regina? I mean, I could not have thought of something more off the top of my head than that example. <laughs> if there's one, Regina's winning. Wonderful news, Regina. <laughs> but uh, we did the audition in, uh, in Leslieville, and I go to these two burger places. So one burger place was dangerous dan's do you remember the double d at all now defunct so he had a now now triple d now triple d he's dead there's another d defunct, it's dead defunct yeah. dangerous dan's <laughs> yeah <laughs> poor guy man i don't know what happened I, I just his rent went up and he, he couldn't afford to be there but his burgers were quite fantastic so he had a burger called the kevorkian as, as one does, but it was like, you know, a heart attack on a plate, but it was so delicious the way he would season the burgers and then the egg and the bacon and this garlic mayo. And I sang that burger's praises from the bottom of my heart. And I was showing people that burger and it was, you know, my mouth was watering as I spoke about my mouth was watering now, as I think about it. Then we went to another local burger shop, which I, I won't mention the name. It's not fair of me to do that, but, but they were like, we let the burger speak for itself. We don't put, we don't season the meat. We let the burger speak for itself. And I took one bite of it in my head. I was like, oh, you shouldn't. You shouldn't let this thing. <laughs> we, we let this slab of industrial beef yeah. speak for itself. And man, I couldn't. So we had to do about 12 takes to the point where the, the owner was getting uncomfortable watching me not being able, because I had just done Dangerous Dan's, no, and I this totally, was two I hours to- later. I, I totally, I totally empathize with it. That's when you start to say things like, you know, I never would have thought of just taking a plain patty and putting <laughs> it on a bun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really uh you got to we look at semantics, you know, word combinations, word yeah. play. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't think I, I was I a great an, actor. I had a great aunt when I was a, growing up and when she would see an ugly baby, she would famously say, "Now that's a baby." Yeah. That's a that's a great way out right now. That's a burger. You're not exactly. taking the side, you're highlighting a burger, oh, but that's so oh, that's great. That's so funny. Uh, I do want to talk about something outside of food also. You know, uh, Bob, Marco and I have been sort of reflecting on this. Like, you're definitely the one, on the one hand, you're the guy who's like, 
uh, here's the best grilled cheese in the world. This is how you make it. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, if we read about Bob Bloomer, they also talk about your your illustrations, which you spoke about, and your objet d'art that can be found in a number of different places, right? So these, you know, these are verbs I'm not as familiar with. He designed and fabricated the Surreal Gourmet Suite at the Gladstone, right? This is something you did a, a decade ago. Then you were commissioned to create these interactive food stations for uh, photographer Ed Bertinsky. And then you designed, uh, redesigned public spaces in LA and made these uh, sculpture pieces for, for, for this shelter hotel in Los Angeles. So reading about all of that, I wanted to get a sense of like, first of all, where does that inspiration come from? What is an objet d'art? Can it be anything? Can it be something made out of plaster scene? And I guess basically, if you can give me an idea of one art piece that you created and how it came to you as an idea and then how it went from that idea or that concept to the the, the final masterpiece that was on display. Uh, sure. Well, let's, um, let's unpack that question. Um, an objet d'art is, that's a French term for an object of art. Uh, right. Well, that I know. Having grown up so in Montreal, like yourself, I got the yeah. literal. So it's a, sculpt- it's a sculpture. But um, if I may be so bold. Oh, be bold uh, with Ali. He needs it. He needs, he needs to hear this. <laughs> no, uh, I, I bring it. You know, in, in, in life, we see ourselves, we see ourselves differently at different times in our life, our lives. And sometimes we evolve into different people than we started out being. So, I mean, I went to business school, then I was a manager, uh, uh, and then I fell into the food world. Uh, and then I've done a lot of different artwork along with all the things that I've done in the food world, sort of sneaking my artwork in through my cookbooks and things like that. But ultimately I realized that what I am as an artist, or this is what I like to tell myself, I'm an artist and that uh, food is one um, of the mediums that I use. Okay. That is part one of our interview with our special guest, Bob Bloomer. We're going to have part two next week, but I just wanted to take a moment here, Ali, and just comment on how great he was as a guest and what a renaissance man he actually is. He's super, super inspiring. I mean, he really has a a, a get up and go button that just only knows how to go. It seems like he doesn't know how to stop. I've had a dinner with him. Oh, man. He's on. He's very on, but not one of those ons where you're like... uh, Hey, this is annoying, buddy. Can you just calm down? It's right. always inspiring, and uh, no, it's wonderful. And I'm I'm happy we get to break this out into uh, two parts. Um, we had no limits on Bob and his, you know, the length yeah. of time he could talk, and he um, he really spent some great time with us. So, yeah, yeah, he was generous. And you know, when two. you say he was inspiring, he inspired me when he corrected you with Brian Eno. How you didn't you know, know who Brian Eno was. I, oh, was going to ask you immediately, hey, buddy, can you just edit that out? Because of course I know who Brian Eno is. Never. I even said, I even said ELO, which is electric like light, light orchestra. Like, I don't know. Sometimes you're in the moment. But in my defense, which is, which is no, weak. No defense. I'm going to put to that as my. Listeners, to our valued, loving listeners. I'm so, I don't know. I'm embarrassed. I'm a music guy. In, in that's going to be my ringtone. Is you Oof. saying that? When you call me, that's going to be my ringtone. Right, you know, what am I doing? Anyway, okay, that's an embarrassment. Uh, but, but, but the good news is for everybody in part two, 
Bob Bloomer is going to break Marco. Not just his heart, but him as a human being, he will break. And that's my, that's our promo for next week. It's going to be great. Marco comes out of it less of a man, less of a human I being do. than he was when he went in. He breaks my heart, he breaks my mind, and he breaks my soul. But sometimes that's a good thing. It just means they, they get I'm to kidding. open up and become bigger, right? Like the, like the Grinch. You know how his heart grew many sizes bigger? Mm, I don't know if we want you to come back stronger. Well, with listen, more opinions. Tune in next week for more of Bob Loomer and check out our show notes where we list all his books, his website, and whatnot so you can get more content from, uh, from, from, the, from the gentleman who is Bob Loomer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again next week until we eat and drink again. <laughs>